as I prepare to read the sermon text that the message is coming from this evening. So uh, we're in 1 Peter, just about the, the last of it. This is we're, uh, chapter 5, we're looking at verses 6 through 11, probably the second to last message before we completely wrap up 1 Peter, which is crazy. But uh, welcome again to church this evening. Glad you guys are here. Let's hear now God's word. Picking up in verse 6 of chapter 5, 1 Peter. God's word says this. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. Let's remain standing and pray together. Gracious Father, God, thank you for your word to us. God, thank you for making yourself known to us in the scriptures, Lord, for making yourself known to us in and through your son, Jesus Christ, by your Holy Spirit. God, thank you for the ways we've already been able to to lift up praises and prayers to you and that we've already been reminded of the gospel in this place. I pray that you'd continue your work among us, Lord, as the good shepherd through this time, this reflection in the scriptures we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Excuse me. Apparently, we don't like the first four rows over here. It's just like a blank spot right there. But it's okay. All the other faces and all the other places are beautiful. So you guys are looking good tonight. All right. So, uh, so church, uh, welcome. Uh, you know, in my thinking and in my preparation for the message this week, I had in my mind at several points uh, this, what is to me this kind of iconic moment that we see again and again in the realm of fiction, whether that's in books or in movies or in theater. And to me, it's this moment where we see this kind of this rising tension between two characters in a story. Oftentimes it's, you know, kind of a good guy character, a protagonist on one hand, and some kind of a a villain, a bad guy character on the other. And they're going along, and there's this, this conflict, this, this thing that's going on between them, a little bit of a back and forth, a tit for tat, a struggle of some kind that's, that's unfolding. It's, just, it's, it's moving along, but then all of a sudden, some point in the story, sometimes it's halfway, sometimes three-quarters of the way through the story, something new happens. Some, some new fact is revealed. Some new level of offense comes upon one character or the other, some, some new, deeper level of insult, perhaps. And all of a sudden, the tension that has existed already in the story and has just kind of been simmering along suddenly gets dialed up. 
tension in the story suddenly gets cranked to 11 between these characters. And all of a sudden, you know, the story continues, the tension is continuing, but, you know, this is the moment, the iconic moment is, you know, one of them might say something to the effect of, okay, we're, we're going to do this again. We're, we're going to keep going at this, but this time, it's personal. Now it's personal. We, we just went to a whole new level. It just got real with what just happened here. Think of examples of this, as I said, movies, literature, etc. For me, one of, the, one of the classic examples of this moment is, uh, you know, we think of the classic Star Wars trilogy, and of course, that second movie where Darth Vader reveals to Luke Skywalker that he is what? All right, spoiler alert, sorry. <laughs> if you haven't seen it, I think it came out in 1980, so it's, uh, yeah, it's on you at this point. Um, so, yeah, like, so up till that point in the movie, right, it's been the dark side of the force versus the light side of the force, the empire versus the rebellion. But then all of a sudden, wait, what? Darth Vader is my dad? This just got personal. Right? This just got real. Think of, uh, in theater, I think of Shakespeare, you know, uh, Romeo and Juliet, the Montagues and the Capulets and the tension they have. And then, you know, it's just kind of going along. They're, they're, they're having these verbal, you know, spats back and forth. And then all of a sudden, blood is spilt, right? One of the, the Capulets kills one of the Montagues, and then Romeo kills another one. You know, blood is spilt. Suddenly it gets real. It gets personal on a new level there. As I think about biblical examples of this, of, of things getting personal, there's a lot of them as we think about the stories uh, in the Bible where things get real. Just since we're in Peter, I think of Peter's life. One example being the, the call to worship text. If you were here at the start of the service that Josh read earlier in John 6. I think of another one being this moment that I've referenced several times as we've gone along in this series through 1 Peter, which is the moment where Jesus uh, approaches his disciples and asks that question of, who do people say that I am? And they start listing off, you know, John the Baptist or one of the prophets. And then Jesus gets personal. He presses in and he says, okay, yeah, who do you say that I am? He gets personal. Of course, we know it's Peter himself who answers back first and who says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He's the, the Messiah, the promised one. And suddenly it goes to a whole new level. Level. Peter is standing before the promised Messiah, the one that the whole Old Testament is pointing to. So looking at those kind of examples, my big reflection as, as I am thinking about this passage, these six verses that we have tonight in chapter five of First Peter, my, my big thought is that being a Christian is like that. Being a Christian is full of these kinds of moments. It's, you know, we are on this, this spiritual journey of faith. And as we are going along, new things keep happening to us and around us. Things, things perhaps we didn't expect. Things like, for example, maybe a, a failure or a, a sin, something that, that we experience ourselves that maybe we even have done. And in that moment, instead of experiencing condemnation and rejection from Christ, we experience forgiveness and mercy and grace 
So it's this moment where grace gets bigger, the gospel gets bigger, it covers things that we, we thought, ah, oh, it could never cover that. And yet it does. New things come into our lives like suffering. Suffering might enter our lives personally in a way that it never has before as we're following Jesus in this journey of discipleship and of faith. And we're suddenly challenged in a new way, whether it's our own personal suffering or the suffering of someone that we care about deeply. Perhaps even just the suffering, for example, that we're seeing in the news, in the headlines, like what we're seeing with Ukraine, and we wonder and we question, why, how, God? And so, so as these things happen, these, these new revelations about grace, these new, perhaps, challenges to obedience, things that we used to think, oh, well, you know, God doesn't really care about this. I can do that. It's fine. But then all of a sudden, through, like, study of the word more deeply or community around us, we begin to realize, oh, no, wait, like, this is not okay, right? Deeper conviction of sin, the reality of suffering, the bigness of grace, all of these things, following Jesus becomes more personal, through these things. And either our faith, our faith gets, gets more real and more honest and it goes deeper, or on some level it begins to die. Right? It, it, we either, the gospel expands and our understanding of what God is doing in the world and our faith grows, or it kind of teeters out, peters out, peters out. Sorry. <sighs> Dad jokes. This is the reality, right? As we look at the scriptures, the story that the Bible is telling us, uh, telling us is that following Jesus is inherently, and I would say necessarily, a personal thing because faith is a matter of the heart and the gospel changes everything when it enters in. It, the gospel leaves no stone unturned in our lives. Whether we want it to turn over those stones or not sometimes. So this is kind of where I want to go and, and reflect on, on this a little bit more in two particular ways, but just one quick caveat before we get there, and, and that is that I don't want anyone here to hear what I'm not saying. And what, what, I, what I'm not saying when I'm talking about following Jesus being personal is that I'm not saying that following Jesus is this kind of purely private, individualistic type of thing. No, actually, I think quite the opposite. I think Becoming a follower of Jesus actually calls us into community in a deep way, a deeper way. We, we get brothers and sisters in Christ. The, the call of discipleship is the call to engage in the church, to become members of the church, to become a part of the body in, in an active and in a real kind of way. So when I'm saying following Jesus is personal, I don't mean it's me and Jesus, you know, and my Bible on an island. There are times for that, there are moments for that, and it's wonderful. But it's not just that, and that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that following Jesus needs to be personal. It needs to go deep. It needs to run deep. It needs to animate us on some level. And it's not something that, that, anyone, that a friend or a parent or anyone else can do for me. No one else can have faith in Jesus for me. It's something I have to figure out whether I believe in him myself. So that's, that's, just, that's my clarifier when it comes to what I'm saying by following Jesus is personal. So, but the, the big thing here, the kind of two main points, like I alluded to just a moment ago, if you're still with me, are we tracking? Okay. 
I need to sniff again. I'm going to turn off the mic. Did that make it better? Nope, just awkward. Okay. All right, so two, two big things here that we're seeing in this passage, these six verses in Peter, I think is essentially this. We're thinking about the personalness here. I think we see that each and every one of us, Peter has shown, each and every one of us have a personal enemy as well as a personal savior. An enemy who is out to get us, who is seeking to destroy the things of God. And a personal savior who is amazingly, incredibly gracious, mind-blowingly so, more than we often dare to hope or imagine. So it's the enemy who is against us and the Savior who is with us and who is for us. Those are the two, the two reflections I want to uh, sink us into for the next couple of moments. So first and foremost, the enemy, the personal enemy here. Peter says very clearly in verse 8 of the text that, uh, if we are disciples of Jesus, we must be sober-minded and be watchful. Why, Peter? He says, because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This is graphic, intense language. And there's at least three things that we learn in this verse, just right off the top here. We learn, uh, number one, just a, a, a simple fact. Right? The simple fact that we do indeed have an enemy. This one that Peter refers to as the adversary here. We have one who is opposed to us. Who is more for our demise than for our good. More wanting us to, to fall away from Christ than to draw near to Christ. He is against us. It is, it is a fact we see in God's word here and in other places. Secondly, not only do we see the, this, this simple fact here in verse 8, we also see the identity of who this adversary is. We see that it is none other, Peter names him as the devil. I feel like more often than not in our culture, the devil is, is a punchline. The, punch, uh, the, uh, the devil is you know, part of a, a comedy sketch that, that we see on Saturday Night Live or we, we see the cartoons, or you know, just the, we play around with the horns, all of these things. But for Peter, he, he's not joking around here. The context is not humor, as Peter is referring to the devil in, this, in these verses. We think about the identity of who Peter is talking about here, and we see it not only in this chapter, in this verse, but we see it throughout uh, the story that the Bible's telling us. We see Revelation chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, the Apostle John refers to the devil as the accuser of our brothers who accuses them night and day before our God. That's verse 10, verse 9, right before that, Peter, or I'm sorry, John refers to the devil as the great dragon, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, and he says, the deceiver of the whole world. This, this is the identity of, of who Peter is talking about here. And that's the end of the story, right? That's revelation, this kind of prophetic vision of where history is going. And yet we also see, if we, if we rewind the tape, we go all the way back to the book of Genesis. We see the, the devil there as well. We see the serpent in the garden, right? Genesis 3. 
Again, the deceiver, the one who says, did God really say? Did God really say that? Just infusing that, that questioning, infusing that doubt of God's word. That is the identity that we see in verse 8. There's a fact here of this enemy. There's an identity of who he is. And then we see also this, this what, what I'd call the plan or the strategy here. And what do we see that the devil is up to? What, what do we see that our adversary wants to do? It says in the text that he wants to devour. He wants to devour. He wants to consume. He wants to do away with. The imagery that Peter uses here is the imagery of a lion. You, you might think of a National Geographic uh, show or something where you see lions that are kind of stalking their prey. Think about how a lion will hunt. Often a lion hunts by kind of dividing and conquering, trying to identify who's most vulnerable here and going after that person, that thing, that, you know, that part of the flock, that part of the pack. Serious stuff. Right? And, and perhaps at this point, it's a good moment to note and to say that I don't think Peter's intent here is to scare people just for fun, right? He's not talking about uh, the devil just so that, you know, he can drum up uh, anxiety in us, right? And that's not, you know, that's not my heart or hope as I mention these things either. Peter's heart here is to talk about true things. He wants to talk about spiritual reality in this moment. And so as he's beginning to wrap up this letter, he's, he's hey, hey, we've talked about the world, we've talked about the flesh, we're, let's talk about the devil here as we, as we close things out. These things that stand against us as we seek to follow Jesus in this world. And what does Peter say as he's, he's getting practical about this? He says, hey, the word of instruction when it comes to this adversary is that we are called to resist him. Verse 9 tells us, Peter says, resist him firm in your, what? Firm in your faith, yes. Knowing that you're not alone. Knowing, as he says here, that as you're in this fight, as you're in this battle, you have, you have a brotherhood, your brothers and sisters all over the place who are experiencing this same kind of confrontation. You are not alone. This is not a one-off experience when you struggle against these spiritual forces of darkness. When I think about the, the personal nature of this and this interaction with evil in a personal way, I think of Peter's own uh, personal life story, once again, his experience. I think especially uh, of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. And there's this really remarkable moment where Peter and the other apostles are walking around with Jesus. And Jesus, you know, it's, it's getting towards the end of the gospel. It's getting towards, you know, the crucifixion. Things are getting more uh, heavy and real as the cross is looming larger in the story, in the, this gospel of Luke. And at this point, Jesus says, uh, verse 31 and 32, Luke chapter 22, he says, Simon, Simon, right? Simon Peter. So Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, Simon. It's personal. 
Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but, but Jesus doesn't leave him there, right? He doesn't leave him in that fearful, anxiety-ridden kind of place because he continues and he says, but take heart, Peter, for I have prayed for you that your faith might not fail. And when you turn again, Peter, strengthen your brothers. So for Peter, as he's writing this word of instruction to these disciples who are all uh, over the place uh, in modern-day Turkey, uh, he's not just, this isn't just academic for Peter. Right? This is very real, and it's, it's a personal thing that he has experienced as he walked with Christ. And in the midst of this, in, in even though there is heaviness here, there is also hope. Before we, we begin to fill out that picture of hope a little bit more, though, and what the goodness is here in this passage, I think it's a good moment just to ask a question. And the question is, has the reality that our battle is not against flesh and blood, as we see Paul talking about in Ephesians chapter 6, hit you personally in your life? Does, does the reality of the spiritual forces of evil mean anything to you. We, we look at the Gospels, especially the Gospel of John, and we see that there's so much going on behind the scenes in the spiritual realms. Jesus is, is casting out demons, and he's healing, and he's doing amazing things. And you know, that, that's, as we read it often, I don't know, I, I guess I can't speak for all of us, but that seems like a very different world as I read some of those stories. And I think that uh, the, our enemy, the, our adversary, the devil, is, is okay being one who is kind of flying under the radar. You know, in our, in our Western society, you know, I think sometimes we think we're, we're so scientific, we're so smart, we've kind of done away with some of these things. Like, devils, really? Do we need to talk about that? That's kind of embarrassing. Peter's saying, no, this is real. We have to talk about it. We're not, we're not beyond this in some kind of scientific way. And I think Satan is happy to be undetected. I, I think of, uh, how many of you have read uh, the book by C.S. Lewis, The Screwtape Letters? Yeah, a good number of you. Wonderful, it's a work of fiction, but it's this fictional imagination of what, a, what an older, more experienced demon would say to a, a younger, kind of protege demon. And one of the things he says is, hey, this guy that you're, you're kind of working with and working on and trying to mess with, like, let's, let's not tell him that, that, that you exist. Don't alert him that, that you or that Satan exists. Like, let's just kind of stay under the radar. That's great for us. Right? I think that's, that's very much the world we live in. The world that C.S. Lewis was addressing is still, in many, in many ways, our, our world and our experience as well. And yet, there's a, there's a good time and a good place to reflect on these things and to, to uh, reflect on the fact that this, this spiritual force of evil, Satan, is real. So what is the hope? Talk about the hope here. What is the hope? Peter calls in verse 9, the people to whom he's writing, to resist him, resist the devil, Firm in your faith, he says. 
Notice what Peter does not say here. He doesn't say, resist him firm in, you know, your own righteousness. He doesn't say, resist the devil uh, firm in, you know, pop psychology. He doesn't say, resist him firm in positive thinking. He says, resist him firm in your faith. And it's a faith that is centered on, rooted in, Jesus Christ and the gospel of what he has done, his finished work on the cross. It's what Peter is alluding to here. We are to focus on the victory that Jesus has won that becomes ours when we are in Christ. Again, I think of uh, the hope here, the calling here. Uh, think again about Revelation. The, uh, the Apostle John writes in Revelation chapter 12, he says, that the saints have conquered uh, Satan, have conquered the devil, so it talks about by two, two things. Anyone know off the top of your head? What are the two things by which the saints have conquered the devil? Number one, it's the blood of the lamb. They have conquered him by the blood of the lamb, the blood of Jesus Christ, the lamb that was slain for the world. And he says, secondly, by their testimony, right? Their personal faith, their word about who Jesus is. This isn't a sermon, uh, as you know, uh, on Ephesians 6, but I also think of, of the hope here and our calling here as believers in Christ. Think of Paul's reflection as he's talking about similar things, about standing firm. He talks about the armor of God. He mentions all these elements, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel of, feet, of peace that we fit our feet with, the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit. And all of these are meaningful and powerful and effective because Jesus Christ is the victor because of what he did and accomplished on the cross. And this is how we face our adversary, the devil, with these things equipped. This is how we, we face the one who says, did God really say? When, when Satan asks that question, when that question pops up, we say, you know what? I know, I know the word of God. God really said this. God really said that. And I'm, I'm going to stand on those things. Even though Satan would love to devour us with lies and he would love to devour us with shame or with guilt. He would love to divide us and separate us. The word of truth, the Holy Spirit at work within us calls us back to what is real. It calls us back to the truth of the gospel. And we're reminded even in that, that moment where Jesus said to Peter, that the, you know, the devil was out to get him, that he wanted to sift him like wheat. Jesus says what? Jesus says, I have prayed for you, Peter. Jesus is still the intercessor for us as well. Jesus prays for us as the mediator. And our hope is grounded in that. So that's leads us to our, our second reflection point here, and that is that not only do we have a personal enemy, this point will be much shorter, 
Does it feel warm to other people in here? It feels hot. Okay, but. Second, not only do we have a personal enemy, but we have also a personal savior who is incredibly gracious. The good news here. Where do we see this graciousness spoken of in the text? Really all over, multiple places, but I, th- I think especially verse 10, Peter says that after you have suffered a little while, he- he's realistic about this life and this world and that we are going to suffer. It's not constant victory in Jesus all the time. No, he's saying, after you've suffered for a little while, what? The God of grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will do these things. Only I skipped a word. What's the word I missed? The God of how much grace? All grace. Not a little bit of grace. The God of all grace, our gracious Savior, who has called you personally, he says, to his eternal glory in Christ will do these amazing things. And then he launches into this list of four things. And, you know, this is, again, I, I feel like I've encountered this just over and over in First Peter, where, like, you can read something in, in Peter and just, you can move past it so quickly. You can either be numb to it, or it can be so overwhelming that you just, you, you skip skip by it, you're just moving too fast. But I think this is one of those places where it's so valuable to just slow down a little bit. These four things, these, these promises of what will happen, what is going to come. Jesus himself will personally, he says, restore. Think of restoration. The image that comes to my mind as I think of restoration is I think of an old, you know, beat out, beat down, uh, rusted out car in a field, maybe. And, and, you know, some people will see that and think, oh, that's a fun project, right? They'll see a, a rusted out, beaten down, broken apart car, and they'll take it and they'll do what to it? They'll restore it, right? They'll, they'll, they'll put new parts, they'll, they'll tweak it, they'll fasten it, they'll in a sense, resurrect it, and suddenly you'll have this beautiful, amazing, classic car, you know, a new, new coat of paint. It's a beautiful thing, restoration. God's word says here that Jesus himself will restore us. He will also confirm us. The second thing here, think of confirmation. Think of confirmation and affirmation of us as those who are made in the image of God image bearers of God. More than that, confirmation of us in Christ as sons and daughters of the king. Jesus will confirm us as his family. He will restore us. He will confirm us. Thirdly, he will strengthen us. What does it take to be strengthened? I think of weights at first, right? But I think also... What it takes to be strengthened is it takes nourishment. Often, we can be so malnourished in this life. We need to be built up. We need sustenance. Peter says, Jesus will strengthen us in that day. And he will establish us. Think of establishing. I think of a a fortress. 
Think of a building that is constructed on a foundation. And it's not, you know, a, a foundation like sand or gravel that'll, that'll just dissipate and disappear, but it's a solid rock foundation. The building that's built on that solid foundation is established. Jesus will establish us. It is a promise. It is what is coming. It's what he is going to do. These things give us hope in this life as we look to what's coming and as we look at what's around us. Do you believe that he's going to do those things for you personally? That's what Peter's saying. It's going to happen. Not only, though, are there these future promises, we see also this incredible invitation for right here and for right now. And the invitation is what we see in verse 7. This invitation to cast all of our anxieties, all of our worries and our concerns upon him. To cast, I think of fishing, right? To throw them upon Jesus. The reason we can do that and we can do that with confidence is because he is indeed, as Peter says here in the text, he is mighty, Verse six, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. He is mighty so we can cast the things that we're worried about upon him because he can take it. We can also cast our anxieties upon him because he cares for us, because he is compassionate, because he is loving. This is our hope in the gospel. This is the good news. Amen, yeah. It's also good news, just to loop back around for a moment, that Peter says that our suffering, it's only gonna be for a little while. The suffering that we're experiencing, that we're seeing our brothers and sisters going through, things like we're seeing in Ukraine, it's temporary. Evil will not win the day. Jesus wins. We have both this personal enemy who wants to destroy us. We have a personal savior who is the ultimate victor and who is the king. Peter notes that to him is the dominion, the power forever and ever. So are these things personal to you? Is, is the reality of, of being in a spiritual conflict, do you believe it? Do you believe that you matter in, in this story of spiritual things that are happening that we often don't even see? Do you believe that Jesus is your personal savior who's going to confirm and establish and restore you? I'll close with this, this little story. I uh, was thinking about the personal nature of faith and you know, our, our discipleship walk, our journey with Jesus. And uh, I was reminded this week of uh, a sermon that I got to just, you know, I was sitting in the congregation listening to when I was in seminary in St. Louis. And it was the associate pastor who was sharing. And as he was on his way to make whatever other points he was gonna make, he started out by just sharing a little bit of his own personal story and his testimony. And part of his story was that uh, his father actually died when, when he was pretty young, um, 
when this pastor was pretty young. And as he went along, he, he started to share about how Jesus and his grace and his gospel entered into his life. And as he was sharing this story, he, he began to, to tear up. He was moved in his, in his heart. Affectionately, he began to weep a little bit in the, in the pulpit. And, you know, not everyone is a crier, you know, and that's okay. But for me, in that moment, that hit me in such an important way. Because here I am in seminary, and I'm studying all this theology. I'm processing all this stuff on kind of a scholarly, intellectual level on some level, pastoral too. But suddenly, it hits me in that moment. And the question is, do I have a belief system, or do I have a personal savior? Do I have, do I have connection with a God and with redemption and with a story that really matters to my soul? Or is it just kind of theoretical stuff that I want to kind of argue about and kind of prove everyone else right or wrong based on what I believe? The invitation here is to continue to find joy in the God who is personally open to us, open arms. Let me pray for us and we'll partake of this meal together. Father in heaven, God, thank you for your grace, which is astounding, for your mercies, which are new every morning. God, thank you for the grace that we are about to witness and partake of, Lord, that is uh, portrayed in these elements. Use them in our lives. Lord, for your namesake and glory and for our good, I pray. Amen.